Good morning, everyone. Oh, thank you so much. It's nice to hear people in person and those of you on Zoom. My name is Mike Radow. I use he, him pronouns, and I'll be your worship associate and your announcer and everything else today. Thank you, Sarah. I am honored to introduce our guest speaker today, King County Council Member Sarah Perry. Um, I'm delighted on a personal level because I know Sarah when our children went through RE and coming of age together right here at East Shore. Um, but in a more formal way, Sarah Perry was elected last year as the newest member of our nine-member King County Council, and she began her term in January, serving the residents of District 3 and the county as a whole. There are about 250,000 residents in East in each of the nine districts, and Sarah's is the biggest. It runs from East Lake Sammamish to the Snoqualmie Pass and from the Snohomish County border to the southern border of the city of Issaquah. The 11 cities and towns that she serves, big breath now, Issaquah, Sammamish, Redmond, Woodenville, Bothell, Carnation, Duval, Fall City, Snoqualmie, North Bend, and Skycomish. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Sarah. Councilmember Perry has hit the ground running in her focus on areas that emphasize equity, access, and opportunity, supporting small businesses, increasing access to affordable housing and transit, and tackling environmental protection with the urgency required to protect our communities. She is deeply committed to the areas of behavioral health and has been convening monthly meetings with groups from throughout the cities in her district to explore ways to meet the demand for behavioral health support services and facilities for those struggling in our communities. Sarah currently lives in Issaquah with her husband, Bill Ramos, and their dog, Sadie. Let's give her a warm welcome. Sarah Perry, I use she, her pronouns. I'm very happy to be here. It is such a beautiful space. And as I said, I raised my family, my children here um, for 10 years, and I was very grateful, still very grateful for the impact. So this is about the light in all of us. This is about every one of us having value and every one of us having a multitude of differences, no matter what they are. There are a lot of statistics, what I'm about to share, but at the end of the day, it's about the heart work. And I heard Jean Lamont today say that uh, this congregation, as they called their new minister, has been in a lot of head work. And now you begin the heart work together. That's very beautiful. So this talk from Alzheimer's to autism and everything in between is ultimately about what we can do together to shift how we think about brain chemistry. So I would love to know by a show of hands who among us has lived with or is related to or knows someone who has lived with Alzheimer's, autism, anxiety, depression, Suicidal ideation, psychosis, schizophrenia, or any similar experience. Take a look around. Have those back up. Take a look around. That's all of us. If we're living in this society, this is all of us. It is a very, very common experience. 
More than 6 million Americans are living with Alzheimer's right now. And by 2050, this number is projected to rise to nearly 13 million. About one in nine, age 65 and older, almost 11% has Alzheimer's. Almost two-thirds of Americans with Alzheimer's are women. About one in 44 children experiences life from the autism spectrum. For some of these, we have years of focus and fairly adequate support and services and resources. Not perfect, but fairly adequate. There are medical support systems that walk you through a process. Support is covered by insurance, and many, many companies provide deep support. There's a, there's a sense of general acceptance that it's about brain chemistry for autism and for Alzheimer's. There's a public will to help and to learn more, a caring and compassion for the physicality of it. And because of the public will, there is funding for research and all of these support services. For others, there are nowhere near adequate resources and support systems. And though these are also issues of brain chemistry, it is not treated in the same vein as a medical model, and there is not the public will to provide the same level of support. If you have depression or are living with depression, anxiety, suicidal ideation, psychosis, schizophrenia, or substance use disorder, which is sometimes used to self-medicate if you are not diagnosed or if you are not taking your medication, and some substance use is just pure addiction, but again, all of that is brain chemistry. According to the National Alliance for Mental Illness, which I hope will be renamed to mental health, uh, one in five U.S. adults experience mental health issues each year. One in six U.S. youth aged 6 to 17 experience a mental health disorder each year. 50% of all lifetime mental illness issues begins by age 14 and 75 by age 24. Suicide is the second leading cause of death among youth, among people aged 10 to 34. Just to digress for a moment, 75% of all deaths from gun, all all gun-related deaths are suicide. 75% of all gun-related deaths are suicide. 46% of U.S. adults with mental illness received treatment in 2020. 50, almost 51% of youth aged 6 to 17 with a mental health disorder also received treatment. People with depression have a 40% higher risk of developing cardiovascular and metabolic disease than the general population. So for those among us who really want to think about a financial model, If that's what moves us to public will, we are paying for not paying attention to depression through cardiovascular and metabolic disease funding across our population. 32% of U.S. adults with mental illness also experienced a substance use disorder in 2020. In the King-Snohomish-Pierce area from July 2021 to October 2021, 
34% of respondents age 18 to 24 felt depressed more than half of the week. This is during COVID. And 33.8% had little interest or pleasure in doing things more than half the week. Our current attitudes about these issues of brain chemistry exacerbate the problem. We shame, we hide, we ostracize, we make people feel like they are not worth the effort and they should not bring it up because they are broken. We are broken. We talk about heart disease. We talk about cancer. We feel the compassion, but we don't talk about this overwhelming issue of brain chemistry as brain chemistry. Behavioral health and substance disorder is now a national crisis. It's a state crisis. It's a crisis in your own neighborhood. You just don't know about it yet because we're ashamed to talk about it. And the lack of transparency and ability to recognize that it is an issue of brain chemistry is killing us and killing those we love. So what happens right now when someone calls for support? So you can have anxiety and depression All of us do from time to time. But when it gets to a point like the story with Ruby, where it's interfering with our daily life, our happiness, our ability to do what we need to do, that is a problem. And when our families are experiencing family members or loved ones in crisis and they call for help in our crisis line, you know what happens? Somebody answers it's a crisis. Maybe you've never called and you finally decided to call for help because your loved ones needs hospitalization or support. And they say, we'll get back to you within 24 to 48 hours. That's what happens. And then they get back to you within 24 to 48 hours. And they say, okay, after talking with you, it sounds like this really is an issue and they need to be seen by a medical professional. We'll be out in the next two weeks. That's what happens. They have to get two designated crisis responders, two police or sheriff, and an ambulance, and a judge order. When they finally show up, maybe they a couple of these are angels among us and have the training to work with people who have a behavioral health disorder issue, and they're able to get them into the ambulance. So there's a condition in your brain, that if you're walking out without pants on, for example, and and one of our designated crisis responders, DCRs, want to get you help, want to get you into the ambulance, you say, I'm fine. I'm fine. And you're not hostile. You're just saying, I'm fine. No pants. I'm fine. Somebody who has the training can help you get into the ambulance just, for, just to check you out. Somebody without the training is, can be combative because it doesn't make sense. You're not fine or we wouldn't be called and, you know, can get into a very defensive pose and it can end very, very badly. For those who do get into the ambulance, a judge orders 60, 60 visits a day. So for those who do get into the ambulance and are taken to Harborview or Fairfax or any of the locations that would provide behavior behavioral health support, we are so full in these spaces and so understaffed that they look and they say, you don't seem homicidal or suicidal today, you can go. 
So weeks have gone by for your loved one, and they are literally right back with you with no care. And this happens over and over again. And the judges that um, sign 60 orders a day for pickup, of those, only three to four make it to the hospital. So we are getting better at this. We're learning about this, and we have a national hotline. Who's heard about 988? Great. 988 is a behavioral health hotline for suicidal ideation or any depression uh, that you can call where a person with a badge and a gun won't show up, but a person with behavioral health sp- uh, skills, social worker, maybe the fire department will show up to support you. So we're figuring out who to call between 911 and 988. And then we're also figuring out who's going to come. It's about Who's going to, who do you call? Who's going to come and where do you go? That's what it's about right now. So between police, sheriffs, firefighters, our tribes, behavioral health specialists, social workers, and peer navigators, it's messy right now, but we're figuring out our lanes and we know who will come. The challenge is no matter who you call and who comes, we still have nowhere to go. The beds are full. The staffing is incredibly short and there's, you know, that's for, that's for emergency, but it's also for long-term healthcare spaces for behavioral health. In 2018, we had 388 beds for long-term healthcare. Now, years back, we closed Eastern and Western Psychiatric Hospital. We have done a very poor job of providing beds for those who were released. So that starts there. We do have, uh, we had 388 beds in 2018. And due to underinvestment in our infrastructure, we now have 266 beds. And the numbers have expanded um, immeasurably at this point. Decreasing this 266 bed number, we just lost 16 beds last week and are expecting to lose another 50 beds in the next two weeks. They cannot sustain the facilities. We are not investing in our facilities. At King County, we're working diligently on this issue through the Department of uh, DSHS and our Behavioral Health Recovery Division. One second. (laughs) And through the King County Council becoming educated on this very complicated issue as well. The Behavioral Health and Recovery Division believes that an individualized, holistic, continuous, coordinated, and comprehensive care approach is what we need. The shift toward this philosophy has been fully supported by the council through a series of county ordinances. The Behavioral Health and Recovery Division provides a wide variety of services, including crisis services, mental health treatment, substance use disorder treatment, and diversion and reentry services. Our jails... 51% of our jails have folks incarcerated who have behavioral health. Sorry, 51% of the residents in our jails have behavioral health issues, medicated, untreated behavioral health issues. It's the largest behavioral health facility we have, and that's not what it's there for. 
So the Behavioral Health and Recovery Division services cover residents who are Medicaid eligible and have services for those who are not paid a family wage, who experience low income, and non-Medicaid eligible residents. A list of their crisis services includes a 24-7 crisis line, emergency next-day appointment, mobile crisis outreach, emergency service patrol, peer navigators, crisis respite program, crisis diversion facility, hospital diversion beds, voluntary inpatient treatment, and our DCR, designated crisis respondent evaluation and involuntary commitment. So we have many of these things. We just don't have enough. We don't have nearly enough. And when it takes two weeks to address an emergency, you can imagine how some of that can turn out. So we have to first stop the loss of our, of our beds in our facilities. We have to first stop, um, by investing in our upkeep. And then we have to add new facilities. So we have to stop the bleeding of the facilities. So we keep the beds we have. And then we have to invest in new facilities. We have to support our staffing so that they're paid a living wage and that there's career advancement potential. And we have to change our public will about what they're doing. We have to ensure an integration of the centers that do exist because they don't speak to each other a lot of the times. There aren't systems for these uh, different centers to speak to each other and for police and fire to speak uh, to each other about something. So if somebody is really set off when you mention the Red Sox, for example, everybody needs to know that. Everybody needs to know what the trigger is for the folks that we care about, our loved ones, our friends, our community members. And we need to change the insurance code. Sometimes it comes down to the almighty dollar and the codes that are allowed to be used or not by, for example, a fire can transport people and book it, uh, bill it to Medicaid. Police cannot. Police cannot. And this is a problem. It's a problem for funding for our support services. So my family has experienced acute uh, behavioral health crises over these last uh, 10 years. I have stood there while the designated crisis responder, the ambulance, and the police officers wander around and wait for a family member to hurt themselves or hurt another. And until then, they cannot do anything. They waste hours standing there because of our laws. They cannot touch them. They're not in their right mind. And they have to wait till they are a danger to themselves or another person before they can help them get evaluated. When somebody goes to the hospital and does get evaluated, they are released and to jail. They are released at all times of the day or night without uh, support systems with them and sent to the bus stop. This is how we treat our people. So I joined some of our senators and representatives in a trip to Arizona. And we looked at Gold Seal for Behavioral Health, this continuum of care campus from a company called RI. They have a 23-hour emergency drop-in with no wrong door. You're never turned away for anything. Confusion with Alzheimer's and autism, depression, anxiety, suicidal ideation, psychosis, violence, you're never turned away. And they get you stabilized. And they send you back out or they admit you to a 
three to four day stabilization space where you get your meds set or you get your sobriety in place and then you go back out. Or you go to a 16-day or 16-bed, 15 to 30-day facility for short-term care with supportive services there, with social workers, behavioral health specialists. Then you go back out. Or you stay in a shelter space and look for long-term housing. In Arizona, the tribes, the role for the tribes is to meet everybody who is leaving that space and to follow them, be in touch with them for three months. Do they go to their family? Do they go back to the community? Some people are living outside and just need three huts and a cot. They just need a safe space. They can go there too, over and over again. That keeps folks from going to the emergency room. There's a medical model brought in and supporting, and it keeps people from going to jail and changing the trajectory of their life forever. The tribes play a critical role in this space and dramatically reduce the return because of their engagement with our community members. So there's that aspect that we want to look at here. And we have various places in King County where they're doing one thing exceptionally well, but not that campus of care. And we need spaces that are in our communities. I'd love to see one in each of our nine districts so that Folks can stay in their community instead of going elsewhere in scary places that are really big to be warehoused. We need folks, they do much better statistically when they stay in their community. It would be great if they are along, connected to a hospital, but not directly aligned with it, so that you have the opportunity for support medically as needed. In the model in Arizona, they are 20 minute drive from each other. So police and fire, could go either way for a 20-minute drive. We're looking at one in uh, part of Redmond, and we're looking at one in Snoqualmie by the hospital there. And they have to be along a main thoroughfare so that police, fire, behavioral health folks, social workers can get in and out in 15-minute drop-off. So they don't spend their entire day um, and hours in this space where they are not trained to support folks. So we have a wonderful uh, senator, Monka Dingra. We have wonderful representatives, Lauren Davis, Nicole Macri, Tina Orwell, who are championing these. And Lisa Callen is championing this for youth. We're coming together with state and county and Medicaid and many different systems to look at what we can do together. And the state wants to take care of that drop-in. No insurance needed, 24-hour drop-in, state-funded. What can the county do? Can we fill in the gap? Can we cover the uninsured and underinsured? Can we add to the staffing funding so that staff stays and they have career advancement? Can we look at a model where we're bringing in these different, you know, five or six different campus of care, uh, community, um, campus care initiatives? There are a lot of different opportunities we have to work together. And I've been meeting with police chiefs. So I've been meeting with the mayors of each of the 10 cities once a month. I meet with the police chiefs of the 10 cities every other month and the fire chiefs of the police of the 10 cities in between. And every single one of them is talking about, please help us with behavioral health. Every one of them. And we have the King County Regional Homelessness Authority that's working on peer navigators. So if I have been into the depths of depression and I've come out of it, I can volunteer or they can pay me a stipend. And if I see Millie walking around and she's super depressed, 
there's a sense that we have in each other if we've had suicidal ideation or if we've experienced anxiety or psychosis or any of these things, we can sniff it out in each other. And if you have peers who've experienced this, they have a much better chance of bringing people to health than if they look at it and are, you know, don't see it coming. So 60% of the staff in the RI model in Arizona are people who have been there, are peer navigators. We have a wonderful opportunity, but at the end of the day, it's really about each of us. At the end of the day, this is a medical model, and we need to find a way to undo our own conditioning in this society to immediately be scared, resistant. You can feel it in your body language sometimes. You look at people, you're afraid of them. Sometimes the schizophrenics that wander around talking to themselves are the most gentle people. They're the, they're just, they're talking to voice, hearing voices and so on. They're very gentle people in general. We have many opportunities to support. And so I think as a faith community, whatever that faith is in the, the great spirit, in God, in Allah, Yahweh, any, any, any way that faith community shows up, we share those values, those basic values. So at the end of the day, we need to open our hearts and our minds to find a way to recognize that when we are having depression, anxiety, any of these issues, we find ways to talk to each other. In our Native American community, the suicide rate is that every six days, a young person takes their life. And these are girls, mostly young girls, every six days. So we have work to do together and this is the core work we can do if we want to heal our world and make sure that everybody feels that they have value. It starts with our mind and our resistance, but it ends up if we're going to be effective in our hearts. We need to find a way to see the light in everyone so that the blip, so that the experience they have is a blip in their life and not a catastrophe like Texas. It's everywhere. And you wonder what you can do. And you throw up your hands when these things happen. You can do something right in your own family. You can do something right in your own neighborhood to change the way the ripple happens. So instead of the ripples of pain of us killing each other and hurting each other, we can change it to ripples of love by just making that extra step to smile, to look out, to connect. So I hope as some opportunities come up and you see them announced, you can help us lean into these opportunities. You call us, you email us, you ask us questions. You give us an opportunity to do this together. You are the government. We are the government. It's of the people, by the people, and for the people. And it is our public will. It's the only thing that will change this. So I hope you'll join me. Thank you.